let's um, let's kind of dive in here for a minute. We're going to be in um, in Luke seven, as I mentioned. Now, I kind of asked this question. You don't have to answer it. You might want to ask it of yourself. You consider yourself a sinner or a saint? You know, don't don't answer with people around you. That'll indict you. Okay. Um, we have a little running argument around here a little bit. There's a song that I actually love, and I've I've probably sung it somewhere in the past, but it conveys kind of a funky little message. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, I'm a little nervous about that little nomenclature, and so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But the truth is, what do you think God, who do you think God thinks you are? You think he think, sees you as a sinner or a saint? See, my guess is most of us think that God sees us as sinners, and I'm going to tell you that if, in faith, okay, by God's grace, he sees you as a saint, all right? And I love that. Now, to, in a story that we're going to deal with today, Jesus takes someone who thinks they're a sinner and someone who thinks they're a saint, and he kind of switches the tables. You know, as you read the Gospels, what I want to encourage you to do is read them with an eye to getting to know how Jesus is, who he is, what he's like. Because my, my guess is, if you're like me, after studying this old book for most of my life, I kind of fall in love with him all over again. His style is so supreme to anyone else. The way he does things, the way he teaches truth, all those things are so superior to anyone else. Don't you just love him? I love what he's doing here. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, this is one of the many stories in the Gospels that play on this contrast between two types of people, the saint and the sinner, as I mentioned before. What I love about Jesus, one of the things I most love about him, is that he regularly associated with both types of people. You would think that the sinless, the spotless Lamb of God would only hang out with saints, right? But it's just not true, is it? And the Gospels are really, really clear about that. And I, I love that about him. He praised, encouraged penitent sinners while blasting those who were most devout among the Jewish people as models of kind of saintly faithfulness. His parables often contrast a stereotypically righteous person with someone whom uh, many would view as an unlikely candidate for salvation. Now, you know about those. The examples of them would include, you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? The hero in the story was the most unlikely one in the story. Um, certainly the prodigal son talks about the value of a sinner coming home. Um, uh, I, I love the story uh, told in a couple of places, but certainly told in, uh, in, um, um, in chapter Luke 18 of the comparison that, that Jesus tells between the, um, the, the Pharisee and the publican or the tax collector. Now, by the way, that's not Republican. That's an entirely different story that he tells. No, never mind. But yeah, it's a different story. Um, uh, so we, we see him kind of switching the tables here. 
He makes, um, um, today, in the lesson we're going to deal with from Luke 7, we're going to see this extreme nature of a contrast between a person that, that was thought to be the most righteous kind of a person and another who could have been, who was often viewed as being one of the most sinful. Now, this story is similar to others in the Gospels, but actually only Luke tells this particular story in the four Gospels. So uh, I got in the middle of this this week and I thought, okay, is this the same person that did this? Or is this the same? And it's actually not. This is a unique story. So when you get over there, don't kind of confuse this one. Uh, this act actually happened in two different stories in, um, in the New Testament, but only Luke tells this story from early on in Jesus' ministry. The others kind of came late. Um, and uh, a person by the name of Mary is involved in that one. So, okay, we're going to go with it here. Bob, do you mind read 36 down through 39? By the way, there are no statues in the Middle East erected to that guy, okay? I just want you to know that. Um, um, <laughs> I don't think. Um, never been there, but I don't think there are any statues over there. That kind of an attitude. And we're going to deal with that a little bit. Now let's talk about who he is, okay? He is, uh, you can put in your first line, and you can spell it. If you have trouble spelling it, look at your, look at your Bible and it will help you with it. But he was a Pharisee. The saint in our story, or kind of the perceived saint, was a Pharisee. All right. Somebody read. Uh, jump ahead there. And read just verse forty. Going to tell us kind of his name. Okay. So his name's Simon. Okay. We know that much about him. Now this is confusing. Okay. If we let it be, and, and frankly, I had to kind of wrangle with this off and on all week. Simon, there's the, how many Simons do we know in the New Testament? Simon Peter, not him. Okay, he's, he's with them, part of Jesus' entourage, but not him. Simon the leper, which at one point when I was studying this, I'm thinking, okay, is that Simon? No, it's not him. He's a dear friend of Jesus, and he's the dad of uh, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Okay, that's a different story for a different time. Okay, this is another Simon, pretty, a pretty common name in the New Testament. Not, this is not the Simon, probably over in the book of Acts, who was guilty of uh, this um, thing that we now call simony, trying to buy spiritual favor. So, uh, okay, this was another Simon, but all we, we do know that he was a Pharisee. What do we know about Pharisees? I'm sorry, say that again a little. Strict. Strict obeyance of the law um, they considered themselves the pure ones, and everybody else kind of did too. Often, Pharisees were called upon to be leaders in the ruling council. A lot of those were from the Pharisaic sect. 
all, there were also some, some Sadducees among them and others. But, um, uh, and, but in particular, uh, in the, during the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, as the synagogue system developed, they would call on a lot of these in whatever neighborhood or whatever city or town um, a group of Jews would find themselves and they would organize a synagogue. It was typically a Pharisee who would be called on to be kind of the president of the synagogue. He'd be kind of the leader or the teacher or maybe a rabbi in the synagogue. So they had lots and lots of favor and lots and lots of um, uh, kind of um, uh, leadership in the nation. But I began to wonder... What do you think was Simon's motive for inviting Jesus to his party? To make him look good. That's good. Now, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but that's a really good one. To kind of, okay, um, he invited a celebrity to the party to make him look good, okay? I think that is maybe part of his motive. We'll see it a little bit later. They're always trying to catch him. Now, now go back. Um, somebody got flipped back and read 6-7. Because it tells about a lot of the Pharisees what they were up to. And Simon was one of these guys. What does 6-7 say? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Okay, so here's the group of which Simon is a part, who's regularly kind of, as my dad would say, they're laying for him. You know, they're waiting to see what, uh, what he's going to say that would be inappropriate or that they could catch him in, or in particular here, uh, going to see if he was doing some healing on the Sabbath. Now, probably, by the way, one of the little details I read in some of my study on this, this could have been a Sunday, a Sunday lunch, okay, but not on Sunday. This could have been a Saturday lunch, I guess. This could have been after synagogue service on Saturday. Uh, Simon invites a bunch of people who were in attendance to come over to his place. So uh, think about that. But, and he invites the teacher, invites the rabbi. And, you know, his motive was probably something like patronizing. Doesn't believe in him, doesn't get it, doesn't see the attraction. So there, but there's a little bit of respect because of the fellowship that Jesus has, but it's mixed with contempt. Can I get that? A, kind of a patronizing approach. A little bit of respect, but we're going to see how limited in a minute his respect was. And this respect is kind of tempered with some contempt. Bob? Maybe he slipped up and said it was a little more informal and not right in front of Oh, I think definitely so. Okay, he's not in the temple courts. He's not in the synagogue. Well, maybe if I call him to... Invite him to dinner, he'll say something there at an unguarded moment that'll get him in trouble. Could be. Now, let's contrast then in verse 37 the other person who's kind of front and center in this story the woman. Probably, and you may have never written this word in your life. You can write it this morning and feel good about it. Okay? She might have been a prostitute. I'll leave it to you to figure out how to spell that. All right? She was likely a prostitute. Um, according to verse 39, if you'll look ahead with me where, where Bob has already read, but look, look back there for a second. It says, in Simon's words there, if this man were a prophet, he would know who, who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. She had a reputation. Okay? 
Um, and Simon saying, well, evidently, evidently the teacher is not all that astute, or he'd know that she had a reputation. But you know what? Jesus loved this kind of person. And here's the, here's the kind of wonderful truth. If he hadn't loved this kind of person, I'm not sure he would have loved me either. Okay? I mean, the ground is kind of level here on this playing field. Go to, would you go with me? I, I, I love this little bit of the story. Um, chapter 5, so just turn back, if your Bible's like mine, just turn back a couple of pages. John, can I get you to read 527, the little story, 27 through 32? It is not the healthy that need the doc. It's the sick. I mean, could it be more wonderfully put than that? Don't you just love it? Uh, by the way, we wouldn't have the Gospel of Matthew if Jesus didn't hang out with this kind of person. Right? We wouldn't have this story in the book of Luke if, if Jesus didn't hang out with prostitutes. Which, by the way gained him kind of an interesting reputation too. But I'm really glad he did. Now, this is a really interesting scene and the word that I want you to put in your blank there for 38, it's a very awkward scene. Okay? Much like Matthew's party which, by the way, who'd Matthew invite to his party after he met Jesus? Other people like Matthew, his friends. None of them who were on anybody's guest list except two other people like Matthew. This woman wasn't invited to the party, but often people crashed this kind of a party. It was, uh, it was kind of in an open courtyard, we think, and people would kind of, if, if there was a teacher there, people would kind of stand on the edges and listen. And she was doing that. She wasn't invited to the table. But she came anyway. And the setup of this is, I started to illustrate this, but I just can't do it because my back is such these days that if I do this, I may not get back up. So you can imagine, all right? Uh, they're reclining at, on low couches at a low table, probably leaning, everyone at the table is leaning on their left side. Okay? So do that. Lean on their left side. They got their feet behind them. Okay? Which, thank the Lord, they had their feet behind them. Larry, you're not going to eat with me if you put your feet at the table. Okay? I'm sorry. Feet behind them. She walks up behind him and begins to do this amazing act to him. What all does she do? Verse 38. 
She's crying. And she's, she's using some perfume, but she, really, she's weeping so profusely that she uses her tears to wipe Jesus' feet and she uses her hair. I mean, it's, this is really, it's beautiful. It's magnanimously beautiful, but it's also extremely awkward. The question is that we've got to deal with. Why was she weeping? What does her weeping indicate? Probably. Either now or before, but at some time, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So would somebody go to Psalm, this is not in your, in your outline, so you may want to write it down. Psalm 5117. Somebody find that one? Eileen, I see you going there. Would you mind to read it for us in a minute? Psalm 5117. Now, why is she weeping? Uh, something touched her. I think, Cindy, I wonder if there's more, a lot of these stories, there's more than meets the eye. When, when Jesus calls Matthew and says, come and follow me, that wasn't the first time they'd met. Okay? They'd had encounters before and I've got a feeling Jesus had said Matthew you know what you don't think you are but you're a really good guy I wish you'd follow me and finally on this one day that we read about a while ago from from uh, Luke 5 Matthew did follow okay now so I wonder if there's been other encounters I wonder if there has been uh, an encounter where Jesus said to this girl you know man you know you don't have to live like this. I've got something a lot better for you. And I wonder if she's already made that decision and she's already one of those who's in the entourage that's following as a disciple because there were lots of people that were disciples of Jesus that were outside of the 12 that nobody else would have included in their party because they had a story. Now, why the tears? Listen to Listen to David's confession. By the way, this is after the Bathsheba issue. In 5117, Psalm 5117. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You catch that? This, these were tears of contrition. What's that word? That's I'm sorry for my sin. And God will always accept a confession, a sorrow over my sin. Debbie? Is there a possibility that this woman was the same woman or perhaps saw the woman that Jesus saved and then stoned? You know, I had that same thought, although she's never identified that way from John 8. Yeah, could it have been, what, what Debbie's asking, could this have been a person who was almost put to death, stoned to death for, for prostitution, and Jesus saved her. Could have been. But it, she's never identified that way. Well, what's important here for you and I to notice is that the tears are tears of sorrow, not tears of sorrow over I lost someone. You and I have all had that kind of tears lately. These are tears of sorrow over my sin. And we all need to have those on a regular basis. You see, I came out of, a, out of an environment, out of a, a kind of a, a church setup where you never could really admit that you were sinful. 
you know, confession wasn't a part of what I grew up in. Because saintly people didn't sin, right? And so, 1 John 1, 7, 8, 9, and 2, 1, it was like it clipped him out of the Bible. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us for all the righteousness. In the, the verse that proceeds in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, then the truth of God is not in us. You see, I regularly have to kind of, the Holy Spirit is constantly plowing my heart up saying, dude, your attitude reeks. But I love you. Let's fix this. And I confess it and we move on. Bob? Yeah. One of the things we've got to be aware of here, it's going to, it's going to factor in, is that Jesus is seeing things that nobody sees. Okay? In all of these stories. Now, what I want is to, to bridge the gap to the next section. And Bob, I'm going to get you to come back and read if you're not gone yet. Okay, in just a second, 40 through 43. Okay, here's the deal. Simon sees all this and says something. It's, I'm sure this was in the original Greek, although it's not there. Simon says, well, I never. <laughs> and Jesus says to him, basically with what's coming to verse 40, Simon, that's the problem. Well, I never. And Jesus says, I know. <laughs> Read 40 through 43. Jesus is going to spin a tale. It's based on what he knows about Simon. Here we go. Now, this all starts, Bob, are you reading from the NIV? Okay, uh, I want you to go back to verse 40 just for a second. Um, I'm going I'm to prompt you here in just a second. Simon is cocky. The, the New American Standard doesn't convey it quite as much as the, the uh, NIV does. Jesus says to Simon, ask him a question. What's the question verse 40? Or he says, Simon, I got something to say to you. It wasn't a question really. What's Simon's response? Read it, Bob. And Simon says what? Tell me. I, I, I see him saying that with a shrug. Tell me. Bring it. I'm good. Bring it. And so Jesus tells a story. And it's not at all the way Simon thinks it's going to turn out. You see, um, it's clear in this verse that Simon doesn't get it. Jesus wants Simon to see his error in thinking about sinners in general and who they are and about Jesus himself. And so he, tells, he begins to tell this incredible story here. Now, what I believe, and here's the word, and boy, good luck at spelling this one. You may have to Google it, but here we go. I think Jesus' teaching here is aided by his omniscience omniscience, okay? There's a theological word you can wag your friends with, all right? Omniscience. What does omniscience mean? 
He's all-knowing. Remember we said last week, the devil is not, but God is. And Jesus, as God's son, would be able to read Simon's heart in a way that nobody else walking the planet could. He also reads the woman's heart. He knows clean from dirty. And the tables are switched here. So he reads his heart and he tells his story that Simon's going to say, come on, teacher, tell me the story then. And he tells him the story and you caught the story. The story is about two debtors and being forgiven a, a debt. One of them, 50 denarii, and the other one, 500 denarii, okay? So in either case, the magnanimous act of the, um, of the creditor would be a surprise to the debtors. In either one of them, either one of them would have to say, wow, I mean, that they go to kind of plead their case. I, I owe you 50, but I can't pay. I owe you 500, but I can't pay. And the creditor says, you know what? Let's just forget this. And they're both bowled over by this. Okay, so the surprise here is on the part of the debtors. They have no power in the story. Uh, Although the story seems to be about the forgiver, Jesus uses this to get to the point about the forgiven. Simon, how would these two people react? He says. Simon gets it right, although he's not happy about having to answer it, I don't think. The answer I think Simon gives back grudgingly. By the way, if you want to put it in economic terms, a denarius, you're probably aware of something like this, a denarius is generally a day's, a farmer's day's wage. Okay? So, 50 would be what? A month's wages. 500 would be a couple of years' wages, let's say. A chunk of money. Either way, really. And yet, Simon gives the right answer here, but he kind of gives it begrudgingly. The issue is here, who has the power? Who has all the power? Go with me back to Proverbs 22.7. It's going to tell us who has the power. Proverbs should be right in the middle of your Bible. A little to the right of the middle. It's going to teach us about debt and those kind of things. Are you aware that the Bible teaches us about lots and lots of things? Somebody read verse 7, Proverbs 22, 7. The borrower has no power over the lender. That's the idea. So who's got all the power here? It's the forgiver. It's the lender. What Jesus is trying to say here, though, is this. Here's what goes in your blank. Sin puts the sinner in God's debt. Doesn't it? Who's got all the power in that transaction? The lender, not the borrower. Simon kind of catches it, but he doesn't like what he catches so we're going to move on here, and I'm going, to, I'm going to pick it up at verse 44. All of a sudden now, Simon is on the hot seat at his own party. 
all right? Um, in in, in um, Luke 18, Jesus tells a story about the Pharisee and the publican. We talked about that uh, before. Um, um, and um, I, I think here we're, we're dealing with kind of a, a common understanding here in, in those stories. Here, the sinner is really the saint, and the saint really kind of becomes the sinner. The tables are turned on Simon, and he doesn't like it. And... Um, He's kind of called out for it. He's on the hot seat. Now, I'm going to begin with verse 44. Here we go. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. We'll come back to 49 in just a minute. Now, what I want you to know here is that in terms of good manners in that day, okay, in terms of protocol, etiquette, okay, are you big into etiquette, big into protocol? Um, I'm not, uh, but I, tr- I, you know, uh, I, I think I can eat without embarrassing you at your table, you know, that usually. Some people kind of can't. We've got a group of, of uh, young students at, at our, our school that we're kind of training to eat right in public, you know, that kind of thing. It's just part of a leadership training thing that we do. Well, um, Miss Manners, if, if Miss Manners in, in the day that I was growing up, if that was like Emily Post, if she was kind of the, the, the person, then there was somebody like that in Jesus' day. We don't know who that was, but it was generally accepted that there were three things that you would do if someone came as a guest to dinner to your house. You would do this to everybody who walked in the door. Here's what they do. Number one, they would, um, um, Joe, stand up for a second. They would greet you this way. They'd place their hand here or on your shoulder and kiss you on the cheek. Now, Joe, we're closer than we've ever been, okay? <laughs> it was a common Middle Eastern greeting. It still happens that way. They, they take you by the arm, put their hand on your shoulder, kiss you on the cheek. It was like, glad to see you, okay? Second thing they would do is give them some cool, clean water for their feet. Just, it was accepted. It was part of the culture uh, we don't have to go too far to recognize why that was needed. They were walking in sandals on dusty roads in desert areas. Okay. The third thing they would do, and this is interesting, I just read about this this week. They would give them some rose water or some kind of little drop of perfume, and they would literally kind of rub it on their head or maybe put it in their hair. Just kind of make them smell a little better. I find that really interesting, but it was part of, this was Emily Post, what to do with a guest when they show up at your place in Palestine. What does Jesus call Simon out for? He did none of those things. He just dismissed him. The word I want you to put in your blank, Simon snubbed the Savior. Don't want to snub the king of the universe. If anybody, right? I'm sure he snubbed the girl. She was kind of an interloper here. That we can almost understand. 
but not the master. Come on. Jesus calls him out for it. The tables are switched here. In his culture, perfume is a luxury, and she takes some that she had, maybe all that she had. Maybe it was part of payment for services rendered. I'll let you think about that a little bit. And she gave it over to Jesus to anoint him. So in verse 47, the Bible says, Jesus says, this woman shows great love while the host shows little. Look at the last phrase of verse 47. I think it's really telling here. For this reason I say to you, her sins which were many have been forgiven, for she loved much. What's the implication, by the way, if we only stop there? Simon, you didn't love much at all. You loved little. But he, and he goes on to say it this way. But he is forgiven little, loves little. The last phrase there is an indictment against Simon. His love is little. Can I tell you something? When you get to heaven and you take your final exam, you don't want to know, if, if I read the Gospels correctly, read Matthew 25 to prove me out. When you get to your final exam, when, Jesus, when you stand before Jesus, you don't want to get the love question wrong. It, from the very beginning of the Old Testament all the way through the, the Old Testament, it seems like to me that love is the standard. I don't want to stand before Jesus and Him tell me, your love was tiny. If, if I err, I wanted to always be on the side of love. Simon didn't get it. Your love, Simon, is little. Verse 48 and 49, Jesus says to the girl, you know what? Your sins are forgiven you. And it ticks everybody at the dinner off. Why? Why? Do what? Well, that's certainly part of it, Jim, because they were holy and she was a sinner. Here's the problem. Only God can forgive sin, right? Who does this guy think he is? Who does he know he is? The only one in the room who could forgive their sin and set it right gave forgiveness to the one with the contrite heart. You remember what Eileen read from Psalm 51? The one who shared, who shed tears over her sin found forgiveness from the only one who could forgive. And he commends her here for what Janie Stewart and I would call saving faith. Faith is the only thing that ever could save. It's not her confession, it's not her tears, it's not her um, any of these things. The contrition that leads to faith here. I've got to be careful with this. She was forgiven much as she placed faith there. She went to the right source. 
If we were to make a list of the top 10 things, shameful behaviors that have occurred throughout history, what would be on it? The most shameful things, 10 most shameful things ever happened in history. I think some of it is covered as not being shameful uh, every, every uh, night. It's 6.30 on entertainment tonight, but I, that's just my opinion. But, um, but I do think that most top 10 most shameful things that have ever happened in history, wouldn't you agree that the issue, the blight of slavery has to be included in there somewhere? One name that's indelibly linked to this practice is, is a name by the name of John Newton. He lived from 1725 to 1807. Newton's father was a sea captain. He took John to sea at the early age of 11. He became a, a, a sailor from 11 years of, of, of age on. He literally grew up on the ships among sailors and in ports of call. What a rough life for a kid. When he became an adult, he became a sea captain himself. Newton was actively involved in the slave trade from 1748 to 1754. So when I read that, I started thinking, okay, he's involved in this for about six or seven years. And yet the whole time he struggled to find peace with himself and with God throughout that period. He just, it just didn't add up for him. That all changed when he suffered a stroke. Now, isn't it interesting how sometimes physical ailments can get our attention, and it did in John's life. Following that brush with death, Newton left the business and began serving as a lay minister in his church and eventually became a highly respected Anglican preacher in the Olney Church in England, just outside of London. In 1788, having served the church for 30 years, Newton published an influential expose of the horrors of the slave trade. He didn't just say this is a bad thing. He wrote about it. This served as a public confession of his shame and his sorrow at his former involvement in this sordid business. You know him as the author of those wonderful English words, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, I've got to ask this question here. What is the appropriate response to God's grace, to God's gift, to God's forgiveness? Is it not to bow on my knees with tears in humility saying, Lord, I don't deserve it and I'm so grateful. Or is it, so, teacher, what's your point? Isn't it interesting? Someone has once said that the church is that interesting place where the, the only... Um, the only prerequisite to membership is admitting that you don't belong. <laughs> I think our church gets that. And I love that about this place and about our leaders. It's going to require me to humble myself if I'm coming face to face with God's grace. It's going to require humility on my part. And it's going to require trust to say, okay, I haven't done this well. And I'm sorry for it. Do you trust him? I think our friend in the story, the woman with the wet hair, said it. I think she said it. I think she looked in his eyes and she said two words. I 
believe. I think she said it. And she exhibited it by what she did here. Go with me to Luke 8 next week, will you? Okay, we're going to see another story that are going to illustrate trust and faith. I'll see you. Have a good Sunday.